Hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, the neo-soul masterpiece, Voodoo. Micaiah, it came out January 25th of 2000. It was arguably the first truly great album of a new millennia. What do our listeners need to know about Voodoo? Yeah, well, it's D'Angelo's second album, um, highly anticipated because Brown Sugar came out in the mid '90s, and you know was a very much a genre-defining album. You know, it's this. I, for me and people my age, I, and for people who don't know who D'Angelo is, I kind of compare it to Frank Ocean. You know, Channel Orange comes out, he goes away for a few years, and then Blonde comes out, and it's just this you know masterwork and then we don't hear from him for a while and that's kind of how i understand uh d'angelo um a decade prior to to frank ocean someone who was just this masterful artist who really takes his time and is very considerate about what he puts out um but this album in particular is interesting list wise uh because i mean in 2003 right three years after voodoo comes out Rolling Stone already has it on the 500, but it's new. It's a 488. Okay. Okay. It's a new album. I understand you don't want to put it too high. I get this. In the revision in 2012, they put it at 481. Okay. Enough time has passed where you think you can bump that up out of the 480s. Right. Uh, But then by the 2020 revision, it goes from 481 to 28. Huge jump, huge Mm -hmm. jump, right? So something has happened, right? Even from 2012 to 2020, right? One, I think it's the, you know, more inclusive people who are contributing to the list, but definitely since 2003, right? This has become one of the most cited, right? Most influential albums of the 21st century, right? I mean, it it is one of the most celebrated, all of the musicians, um, attached to the album are, are so celebrated. Everyone who was in the same studio at that time, and we'll get into that, but I mean by that, you know, just like this is a, a just a fantastic document, right, from, from a time that is what some have considered to be and said to be, right, like a new, right, black renaissance, you know, when it comes to, to music. And I think that's an apt description. Um you know, this is a very exciting year, right? In 2000, you get um, new music also from from Common and Erica Badu. And in 1999, so around the same time, everything else is being recorded, right? The Roots. So it, it's, it's a very exciting time for this neo-soul movement that is incorporating soul and R&B music from the late 60s and 70s through the new lens of the hip hop music that all of these young artists have grown up on this new generation, right? They really shape, right? This new sound. And um, some of those artists are, are still shaping that sound. You know, D'Angelo is one of them in 2014, the follow-up to this album, the long, long awaited follow-up uh, was another kind of masterpiece at this time. If we were doing a top 500, I would say all three D'Angelo albums would probably make our list. I, I don't know that Brown Sugar would make mine, but certainly Voodoo and, and Black Messiah would. I think Brown Sugar rules. 
but oh, it's a, it's it's a great album. I just don't know if if I would consider it a top five hundred all time album. Okay. Yeah, I I just don't think it's as meaningful as Voodoo or Black Messiah are. Um, for, for me, it just if jump I'm, starts like an entire genre, but yeah, but I but you know here's the thing: Brown Sugar is a great album, but I actually think Urban Hang Suite, the Maxwell album, takes takes neo soul further than Brown Sugar does. Uh, ultimately, I think Voodoo then becomes kind of the pinnacle moment of neo soul. Yeah. But I, but I think the the biggest early jump isn't from Brown Sugar. I think the biggest early jump is from Urban Hangsweed. It is interesting though, thinking about this album and thinking about now, you know, twenty three years removed from the release of this album. And like you said, there is this strange period of time. This like late nineteen ninety seven, nineteen ninety eight, nineteen ninety nine. Electric Lady Studios in New York. Um, the Roots are there recording. Things Fall Apart. Erica Badu is there recording an album. Common is there recording an album. Um, Most Def and Common will will effectively do the entirety of the Black Star album there. You know, Voodoo is happening there. And all of it's happening across these three floors at Electric Lady Studios while... Questlove is kind of the the guy just hanging out, leading these kind of late night, early morning video watching sessions where every time he gets a bootleg VHS of some, you know, some concert that Prince has done or Sly Stone has done or Marvin Gaye has done. It's like, hey, we're going to hang out and get some food and we're going to watch this concert and then we're going to all hop on instruments and try to play this artist's entire catalog. Like if you think about that as an education, there are not, there, I mean, there's not music schools you could go to that you would come away learning as much about a, about a specific genre of music as you would spending three to six months in that, in that setting and essentially that's what was happening there at electric lady for two years so you think about the music that comes out of that time in that space and it's really incredible and so in some ways i feel like when we talk about d'angelo's voodoo we're not even talking about just this album this this album on its own the the artifact that is this album is is amazing and it stands on its own merits but then when you kind of look at voodoo as also this, this picture of this period of time at this one studio in New York from this kind of two to three year period, uh, what an incredible snapshot. And like you said, to your point, so much of what R&B and pop and hip hop become over the next 20 years is influenced by this time in this place where voodoo is being made. But Mikai, as much as you and I love voodoo, we are not alone in our love for this album. And we have an incredible guest with us tonight to talk about this record. All right. Well, this is the first person who came to my mind when I knew we were doing voodoo. And that is Faith Pinnock. And she is the writer of the 33 and the third uh, book on the record. 
Uh, so I knew we were doing this. She was the first person I reached out to. I'm uh, so happy uh, that she said yes, and she's here with us today. I love it. We'll take a moment, let you hear from our sponsors, and then we'll be back with our guest, Faith Pinnock. I want to take a second and tell you a little bit about Mirror Coffee Roasters. Mirror Coffee Roasters are pursuing excellence from coffee, farm to cup. They're here to elevate your home coffee experience and help you to reflect what's good. Mirror Coffee Roasters are based in Bellingham, Washington, but they are bringing you the finest coffees from all around the world with sustainability as their first priority. Just three years old, Mirror Coffee Roasters are getting set to launch an entire new lineup of coffees. So check them out at mirrorcoffeeroasters.com. Listeners, we're so glad to have her with us. She is the author of the 33 and a third volume on D'Angelo's Voodoo. Her name is Faith Pinnock. She also is the director, a documentarian, and the director of the uh, independent documentary Weightless. And it's available now on IndieFlix.com. And I also want to let you know for our listeners in Japan, through Disc Union Books, through DU Books, you can access her 33 and a third volume on D'Angelo's Voodoo in Japanese. So that is available for you. She is Faith Pinnock, and she is with us. Thanks so much for being with us today on You Forgot One, Faith. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Well, let's go ahead and start here. Why did you want to write about D'Angelo in Voodoo for the 33 and a third series. It was actually my sister who wanted me to write about 
voodoo for the 33 and a third series. Um, she is the one, and actually she's listening. Her name is Kedra. I love you. Um, my sister is the one who turned me on to the 33 and a third series um, many years back. And she actually had a, a, an album that she wanted to write about. I won't say which one. And she had been talking about that on and off for several years. And we were on vacation. It was a family vacation in Mexico. Uh, um, I believe it was 2016. And we were sitting around the pool and she brought up Dirty Dream a Third and her idea. And we were sort of kicking things around as far as how she would write it. And just out of nowhere, she just looked at me and said, you know what? You need to write a book about voodoo for 30 Dream a Third. And I just looked at her and went, hmm, maybe you have a point. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> Sure, why not? Um, and it, it, honestly, it had never dawned on me before to, to you know, pitch that. And so, you know, I went home. I was living in New York at the time. You know, went back home after the vacation and just worked on the proposal. And, you know, it was a lot of work. You know what I'm talking about because you wrote, you were writing your own 33 and a third uh, about uh, Sandinista by the Clash and congratulations. So you know exactly how much work goes into uh, a proposal. So anyway, it took me about a month to write it. I submitted it to 33 and a third and honestly didn't expect, I expected nothing. I honestly said, I honestly thought they were going to say no. Uh, primarily because, well, two reasons. One, I'm not a credentialed music journalist. And then two, I'm not a professor at a university. And those tend to be the two groups of people that are selected to write for a 30, 33 and a third. So I really thought they were just going to look at it and be like, who is this random woman that we've never heard of who wants to write about the Angela's Voodoo album? Like, go away. So I really, I really thought they were going to say no. So I really, I was just like, whatever, that was a waste of time, whatever. Uh, spring of 2017, I get an email from Gail Lauld, who at the time was on the editorial board for 33 and a third. She's a professor at... Uh, George Washington University. Um, and let me give her a plug. She also wrote her own amazing book about Sister Rosetta Tharp. It's called Shout, Sister Shout. Anybody who's a fan of rock music it is a must read. It's amazing. Sister Rosetta Tharp is the godmother of rock and roll, a black woman who didn't get her due in the day as far as being a prototype for rock and roll. So anyway, just want to throw that out there. Um, yeah, Gail Walt, Gail Walt emailed me and said, hi, you know, my name is Gail and we loved your proposal and we want to publish your book on Voodoo and I'm going to help you, I'm going to help you write it. And I, honestly, I looked at the email and I thought, it, part of me was like, am I being punked? Is this real? You know, I started writing it. Uh, it came out in 2000 and here I am talking about it. I have to leave. 
greens to this dish goes like this here's the list what is it that your sister knew about you or what is it for you that voodoo was kind of the obvious pick or, or at least for your sister looking at you and going, all right, voodoo is what you need to write about. What does this album mean to you? What does D'Angelo mean to you that, that made it personal? Voodoo is my all time favorite album. Anyone who knew me in 2000, God bless them. They had to put up with me talking about voodoo pretty much the entire year. I mean, that's all I talked about in 2000 was voodoo. And to the point where I'm sure people were like, please shut up about D'Angelo. Please shut up about voodoo. Um, so, yeah, Kedra was like, yeah, you need to write about this album that basically runs through your veins. <laughs> you know, to, like, all that all that that's been in your head about this album, just write it down and like spare us all. Um, no, but seriously, I, I love the album. Obviously, I, I mean, I'm very passionate about how much I love the album. It is a masterwork. And um, yeah, I mean, she she knew that and just said, hey, you know, this is this is for you. And I guess she was right. I, I really, again, it never dawned on me before she said that to even pitch for 33 and a third and it's funny because a friend of mine i have a friend who met me uh we've been friends for about about a decade so she met me way like way after voodoo came out and i told her when you know when i first got when this was first announced that um i was going to be writing this book and i told her about it like hey i'm writing this this book about uh the angels voodoo album and it's going to come out in 2020 and she was like of course you are of course you're writing a book about voodoo. And I mean, she didn't know me then. And I'm like, did I really, did I lose, like, did I also bother you about voodoo that much? And apparently I did. Because even she was like, of course, yes. That is your destiny that you were writing a book about voodoo. So, yeah, I mean, like, again, anyone who knew me at the time and has known me since apparently knows that, you know, this this album is everything to me. Well, you're in good company because... D'Angelo is someone who has fascinated many people over the years. And I feel like he, he kind of skips a generation because he only releases an album, you know, every so often, especially not like the uh, Black Messiah came out 14 years after Voodoo. Right. He's, he's someone who always gets like discovered and rediscovered by young people. Cause I knew a lot of people by, you know, when I was in college, who would found Voodoo or were just became obsessed, and then when Black Messiah came out, it, that was kind of their D'Angelo album. Um, but they're always going back to him, and, you know, being a big point of fascination. So, I guess, and because he has so few albums, and he's not really on the radio, and there's a, I feel like there's a chance our listeners are mostly listeners of like rock music. Um help our listeners understand who D'Angelo is. Uh, well, D'Angelo was born uh, Michael Eugene Archer. He was born in 1974. His hometown is Richmond, Virginia. Uh, he pretty much grew up in the church, uh, in the Holiness Church, which is a uh, Pentecostal um, branch, or it's, a, it's, a, it's an offshoot of the Pentecostal church. And his father and grandfathers were both ministers. Uh, they both had their own churches. At different times in his uh, childhood, he performed in both of their churches um, in, in their uh, musical ministries. 
uh, as he got older, like when he became a teenager, he started performing at local talent shows in Richmond and pretty much won them all. Uh, and, you know, it, he was considering, I mean, he wanted to be a singer. He wanted to be a recording artist. He did get some pushback from his family, uh, particularly those who were involved in, um, you know, who were, who were, you know, very religious and attended churches. And they, they wanted him to be a minister of music. And they did not, some of them did not want him to pursue a secular music career. And it was, it was his grandmother um, who he referred to lovingly as Miss Alberta that really pushed him to, you know, follow his dream. So, uh, and, partic and particularly this is after D'Angelo had already uh, performed um, at uh, an amateur hour at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. And at one point, I mean, this was not the first time, but uh, he had he had performed, but like, I believe it was after the third or fourth time he actually won. And, and that was really his impetus to to move to New York permanently. So moves to, he, he leaves Richmond, he moves to New York. He is signed by EMI Records at age 19. And in 1995, his debut album, uh, Brown Sugar, comes out. And as you mentioned about Neo Soul, that's one of the sort of early pivotal albums or sort of kickoff albums of, if you want to call it the Neo soul era. Um, and it, you know, it's popular, it's critically acclaimed. And I, I mean, I remember just like when it came out, uh, pretty much everybody I knew, particularly, I mean, R&B fans were all just, just falling over themselves. Like, Oh my God, D'Angelo, he is the, He's the next Stevie. He's the next Marvin Gaye. He's the, you know, he, it was clear that he was going to be the standard bearer for this new generation of soul singers. And that's why when, you know, we were, you, know, they, you had that five year period between Brown Sugar and Voodoo, people were like, when is this next album coming out? We need this next album. Because in context, R&B music in the 90s was, it was very polished. It was very produced. It was very, you know, color by numbers, it, you know, it, some of it is fine. I mean, it, not necessarily that's bad, but it wasn't, there wasn't anything, I mean, pr probably outside of what Prince was doing and maybe to a certain extent, Maxwell, uh, it, there wasn't a lot of like, really, like, there wasn't a lot of groundbreaking happening. There wasn't a lot of pushing the envelope. And that's why the, like the neo soul artists that I know we're going to talk about later, they, they were sort of in the forefront of pushing that envelope. And D'Angelo arguably was sort of the leader of that. So people were really waiting, you know, they wanted to know what he was gonna do next. So in 2000, five years later, Voodoo comes out, um, again, critically acclaimed, also commercially successful, but I would argue not as, uh, not as, not as, definitely not as radio friendly as Brown Sugar. It, I think outside of Untitled, it didn't really get a lot of radio airplay. Then you get a feeling 
I think it went, frankly, went over the heads of a lot of, you know, at your average R&B fan. And I'm not saying that was snark. I'm just being honest because I remember having those conversations with people. I'm sorry, a lot of people didn't get voodoo, in, including people who even bought the album. I think there were a, there was a group of D'Angelo fans who wanted Brown Sugar Part 2. Voodoo was not that. So they were just sort of like, what do we do with this album? But um, but it establishes him, D'Angelo, particularly among his peers, among the industry as like one of the greats, basically, as far as R&B music, that he is the next Stevie. He is the next Donny Hathaway, you know. So and I, I think Voodoo like cements that for him, which is why everything that happens post Voodoo and, and we'll get into that, the downward spiral he went on. It wasn't a guarantee there was going to be another D'Angelo album. And 2014, as you mentioned, uh, Black Messiah comes out. Everybody's happy. They're like, yay, another D'Angelo album. Um, and, you know, it's 2023 and we're still waiting for the next one. So, you know, he, D'Angelo puts out albums when he feels he's ready to put them out. And, you know, he he is sort of a recluse. I mean, I I sort of look at him as... He's the black Brian Wilson, you know, he's this mad genius who just sort of works in his house and he doesn't really want to deal with anybody and he'll put out music, you know, when he wants to. But I mean, there's no question that even though it's a very short discography, his three albums have established D'Angelo as one of the most respected musical artists in music, regardless of genre. Um, he is loved by his fans. He's loved even more by his peers. I mean, when people talk about, you know, like you ha you hear actors who say, you know, Robert De Niro, he's an actor's actor. Daniel Day-Lewis, Meryl Streep, they're actors. They're, they're an actor's actor. I think you could easily say that D'Angelo is a musician's musician. He is a songwriter's songwriter. You know, I, I think, it, I don't think it's crazy to put him in like, you know, a Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan level of mastery as far as, as far as songwriting. Um, and, you know, he's, he has taken the baton from, you know, his forebearers and, you know, some of them I've named, you know, Marvin Gaye, Curtis Mayfield, Sly Stone, Stevie Wonder, Donny Hathaway, Al Green, all of those people, he grew up listening to them in addition to gospel, in addition to jazz. So, D'Angelo, for you know whether he likes it or not, has become, and I think will be for a while, um, the standard bearer for what soul music can sound like and should sound like. Obviously, Brown Sugar is 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 an album. It's probably, as you said, a little more radio friendly 
certainly than Voodoo is. And he releases Brown Sugar to, to pretty unanimous acclaim in 1995. The following year, of course, Maxwell releases Urban Hang Sweet to, to very similar critical reception. Two years later, Miseducation of Lauren Hill comes out. Of course, um, D'Angelo is on one of the, you know, featured on one of the songs on Miseducation of Lauren Hill. So there does seem to be throughout the late 90s this real buildup, not just of this neo-soul movement, but but this high degree of expectation of what D'Angelo's place is going to be in that. And in the same time, as all of this buildup is happening, he is suffering from really debilitating writer's block. One of his ways out of that is finding himself in what... Um, Amir Thompson, what Questlove from The Roots refers to as them going to Seoul University. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about that experience and, and how it was that that ultimately D'Angelo and Questlove and a bunch of musicians hanging out at Electric Lady Studios in New York, essentially studying their favorite artists, turned into the foundation for this album well as you mentioned i mean Questlove uh has been you know sort of referred to as the co-pilot on voodoo um he definitely was there as far as i mean pretty much from the beginning as far as uh, like him and russell Alvado, the uh, audio engineer were like the sort of people there from the very beginning to the very end as far as the making of voodoo and yeah i mean you know, D'Angelo and Questlove became friends uh, after uh, Brown Sugar came out. And and actually, it's weird because Questlove actually sort of turned his nose on D'Angelo when he first heard his, his when he first heard his uh, demo. Uh, I, I believe this was before Brown Sugar had been released. And then once he heard it, he was like, oh, my God, this dude's amazing. And so he's like, I need to be his friend. <laughs> I won't get into I actually talk about it a little bit in the book. I won't get into how they became friends. But by the time they started working on Voodoo, they were very close friends. And, yeah, they would. I mean, uh, Westlope called them tr treats. He would bring uh, perform like video of performances from Soul Train and they would watch that into the night. Um, and sometimes while they're supposed to be recording, they would, they would just sit around and watch Soul Train performances. He brought, Questlove brought something like 4,000, he bought like something like 4,000 records for he and D'Angelo uh, to listen to, um, particularly in the like early, uh, like one or two years, the first one or two years of recording the album, again, for inspiration, for uh, sustenance, just, you know, for shits and giggles. I don't know if I can curse on this thing, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was sort of like a summer camp in a way, you know, them and, you know, Elevado and then, you know, James Poyser and Roy Hargrove. I mean, you had all these people coming together and, you know, they all wanted to work with D'Angelo and they want to make, they basically want to make the music they grew up listening to. And they see an opportunity to do exactly that. And sort of in a, in, in a way, I don't even know if that happens now. It's a, it was very hands-off. Whereas Virgin Records 
pretty much was like, you know, here's money to rent out Electric Lady. Here, you know, here's money to pay for all these session players. Do do whatever. You know, I think as it went on, I think when it when it got into year three, then I think Virgin Records was like, yeah, where is this album? Can you release this, please? Um, but pretty much they were hands off, and particularly in the beginning. And so yeah, they they were just listening to you know all kinds of army james brown and p-funk and curtis may again curtis mayfield i mean uh chicken grease came out of them jamming to mother's son i mean it it was just sort of like this you know like i don't want to say you know musicians running amok but yeah i mean it's it was it was i mean russell lovato himself called it this magical experience where you just had uh, all these amazing musicians, all of them, you know, talented in their own right, coming together. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just Voodoo they were working on. I mean, we'll get into that. There were other albums coming out of Electric Lady at that time. But yeah, they were just that, the listening to the all the, the music and the treats that, again, Questlove uh, talked about led to the jamming. The jamming led to like really creating songs and putting songs together. And, you know, when they were finished, I think they had something like 50, they had 50 songs to choose from. And so they had to whittle all that down to what, what ended up being a voodoo album. I think Questlove said at one point, like really any of that stuff could have ended up on the album. I mean, even the throwaways, you know, the stuff that didn't make it on the voodoo was, was in his mind good enough to be on a D'Angelo record. But that just shows you how exacting and how, he had a sound that he wanted to adhere to, you know, he had a standard. And if it didn't make that standard, even if, to anybody else, we would be like, this is a brilliant record. If D'Angelo didn't think it was up, up to snuff, it wasn't making me out. Oh, I've got much time. 
So I think that just shows you what kind of work was being put in and the the, the skill of the artists that, that were making this music. Well, it's such a, a ballsy thing to go into the studio and be like, okay, everyone, today we're going to make Sign of the Times, Talking Book, uh, you know, um, the first Curtis album, you know, it's just like they, they're really determined to like like shoot for like the highest caliber. It's not like, let's just go in there and find the gurus. Like, no, today we're making right. The sign of the times for the new millennium. Like, and you have this group of young black artists who are about to become right. Just kind of the next thing, you know, like they, they, they have like an album under their belt, you know, Erica Badu is in the mix and you have Q-tip there guiding um some things and he's cut off the record um jay dilla we haven't talked about yet is there like kind of consulting and supervising on some things so you just have i think his quest to like in retrospect was like we had a like a black music renaissance happening and we didn't really know it at the time but I, i i'm just fascinated by them with the ambition of being like no we're 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 here to make one of the all time great albums they de- I don't know if they went in like we're gonna make the next talking book. <laughs> you know, I mean that's a very bold thing, you know. Um, but I know I they did want to make amazing music. I think they want to make music that they they want to make music they would play at their own parties, that you know, they would play in their own cars, you know, driving around the city. You know what I'm saying? But I don't know. I I think, you know, they they were very confident in what they were doing and and I'm and I'm specifically talking about you know the people who worked on Voodoo. They were very confident in what they were doing and obviously very able you know very able and and talented to you know pull things off. But I know and, and, and I'm glad you brought up Jay Dilla because he was sort of the alchemist, like the uncredited alchemist of Voodoo in that he really came in and for those of you who are not familiar, Jay Dilla, uh, rest in peace, and uh, you know this amazing arranger and producer, uh, the visionary behind. Uh, he was part of Slum Village. He was a member of Native Tongues, and really was sort of like he really sort of changed hip hop in the sense that he was doing he was just doing things so out of pocket as far as changing you know, uh, time signatures and what he was doing with sampling and what, I mean, he was just, he was just doing like, I, I called it like sort of, I called it in the book, like musical origami. And I think he was sort of the, you know, the, the person, the spark in, as far as the voodoo crew that really made them go, Oh, okay. We're going to, we're going to play behind the beat. We're going to just do, you know, we're, we're just going to do crazy shit. You know, I mean, they, and I think some of the, you know, you have in some cases like classically trained uh, musicians who are like, uh, this is a little weird. And I, I mean, I, and I think about, I interviewed Charlie Hunter who played on the album. He uh, plays this custom guitar and it's a, it's a combined guitar, guitar and bass. And at one point he said, you know, he said to me, you know, I was playing, I was playing so high behind the beat. It felt like I was playing another song. You know, so I think and I and I and I think and, you know, Pino Palladino, who, you know, the, you know, just brilliant, you know, journeyman bassist who has been he's like 
and I consider it a gold standard of basis, um, bass playing in the, in the world. But, and even he was sort of like, he was used to it in the sense that he's done it particularly because he's worked on a lot of blues and with a lot of blues and jazz artists, but even he was sort of like, this is weird y'all. And his, the people like his, um, you know, people he knew, like musicians he knew, his peers were listening to Voodoo when it was done. They were like, dude, what is this? So I'm not, I think they knew they could do it, but I don't know if they knew how it was going to come out. I think that, you know, there was, it, it was sort of a, it's going to be great. We don't know maybe what it's going to be, but it's, you know, it's going to kick ass. I, but I do think I agree with you that they had, they definitely had the confidence and they just, they were just going to go balls out. And again, I think this is where, having a record company one you're you know you're all playing you're playing with d'angelo and you know that he's one of the best of the best and you have a record company that's basically like you know go at it you know make the best album you can um until it starts costing us way too much money but um but yeah i think you know i don't know if they went in saying we're going to make this masterpiece that's going to rival pet sounds i don't i don't you know, yeah, I, agree with I don't know that they had the the courage to say we're going to make there's a riot going on but you listen to it and you're like okay well they they were out to make there's a riot going on. you know what i mean like they are they hear the lo-fi they hear the funkiness they hear how slice recording his vocals and they're like yes this is what we need but where yes. the alchemy comes in, it's like, okay, but we need Dilla's funkiness on top of Stevie's funkiness. Oh. And let's get Curtis Mayfield's falsetto, Al Green's falsetto. Like it, they're, like oh. you said, alchemy earlier. It's just like, it is. I mean, I guess that's what makes it Neo Soul, right? It is just a composite of all these things. And then uh, somehow Prince is kind of at the center. Uh, right. But yeah, it, it is just this kind of fascinating, it like just is this celebration of... Oh of black music that pretty much, you know, even though I don't know that this is what they're trying to do, but sets the tone or the standard for black music in the 21st century. I mean, it is comes out January, 2000, right? So like, it's the first great album of the new millennium. It's just like, all right, here we go. Here's the standard.
Electric, Stu- Electric Lady Studios is kind of the playground for this entire group of musicians. And there's a lot of shared connection points. You know, I think about the guys that are in the Roots crew. Um, you know, you think about the, the mid-90s movement of Native tongues and how that becomes Soulquarians. But talk to us, if you can, about the the collection of musicians that 97 to 2000 are basically living at electric lady studios all contributing on each other's albums and the albums that come out of that studio from this kind of increasingly large family of musicians yeah um right i mean that's basically well let's go back because i mean we've been throwing around neo soul and a lot of these people are sort of considered part of this quote unquote neo soul movement. Um, and I think you, you touched on it, Rob. I mean, a lot of these artists have, you know, they came in basically neo soul is like a reimagining of the soul music from the sixties and the seventies. And we've already touched on many of the artists that it were their inspiration. You know, these are the people that, D'Angelo grew up listening to. And, you know, on top of that, you had hip hop really starting to blow up as an influence. I mean, it started in the 80s, but really started gaining ground in the 90s. So you have that hip hop influence that's coming in. And again, I mean, part of that's uh, particularly when you you look at Questlove and you look at Jay Dilla, that, you know, that that's sort of an undercurrent in voodoo and also the other um, albums that were being made at Electric Lady at the time. And basically these group of artists, they are the new generation of, you know, of, of standard bearers of, of this sound of, you know, we're going to try and we're going to try and we're going to be the, not even try, we're going to be the bridge from the seven, you know, sixties and seventies from Motown the sound of Philadelphia. Again, we mentioned Sly Stone, we mentioned Stevie Wonder, we, you know, Donnie Hathaway, Curtis Mayfield. We're going to be that bridge and take that really into the new millennium. So we're talking about, in addition to D'Angelo, we're talking about Erica Badu. We're talking about Common, Bilal, The Roots. Um, and then some people would throw, like, you know, unofficially, they would throw, like, uh, Maxwell in there and people like Music Show, Music Soul Child with Sean Patterson. So you had this, like, group of people that they wanted, you know, they wanted that music fans wanted them to be the, you know, to sort of recreate or not, not recreate, reimagine and really make their own the music that we grew up with, um, particularly from the 60s and the 70s. And so now that leads us to uh, all these people recording these albums at uh, Electric Lady under the unofficial name, The Soul Quarians. And basically, it's a lot of people I just named. Um, there, It's an unofficial collective of artists who were committed to making authentic soul music. I mean, they really wanted to, you know, pay, they're paying homage to, you know, all the forebears that we've been talking about before, but again, putting their own spin on it and bringing it 
to a new generation into a new millennium. And so, and then the reason that the name came about is because um, particularly to, uh, with some of the people working on Voodoo, they realized, oh, wait a minute, we're all Aquariuses. We're all born under the sign of Aquarius. D'Angelo is an Aquarius. Questlove is an Aquarius. Uh, songwriter and keyboardist James Poiser, Jay Dilla, and there were a couple of others. They were all Aquarians. So they're like, hey, here we go. So so that's where Soul Aquarians were born. And they were all and I'm, not, I'm still not, and honestly, I'm not sure how that all came about where they were all at Electric Lady at the same time. I guess they all went to their their management and said, can we record at Electric Lady? And they're like, yes. Um, but they were all at Electric Lady recording their albums. And in many cases, they were going into each other's studios to see, you know, what, you know, hey, what's Common working on over there? You know, what what is Erica working on over here? And even a lot of the um, session players would like, switch over and play on, you know, their songs, you know, or play on their albums. I know Pino Palladino and Roy Hargrove both played on Mama's Gun, for example. So you had Voodoo and then you had Mama's White Water for Chocolate. You had Erica Badu's Mama's Gun, uh, Bilal's Firstborn Second. You had The Roots, Things Fall Apart. All those were recorded at Electric Lady at in the late 90s going into the early aughts, which you look at that list and it's like, whoa, I mean, that's that that's a pretty insanely amazing list of of albums to come out of one period of time out of one recording studio. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's a studio again. This is Jimi Hendrix's studio. Stevie Wonder recorded Music of My Mind and Talking Book there. So in a way, it just continues. Yeah, it was a continuation of that um you know that history of you know of soul music that they wanted to honor so and and you know it, it's i don't know if that's ever going to happen again sadly uh i think you know now people having home you know they all have homes i shouldn't say all but you know people have home studios and people are sort of doing you know they're recording stuff like in like in their bathrooms or whatever you know you don't have i don't know if you have that camaraderie that kind of sort of like again summer music camp thing where you know hey we're gonna all come together and fuck around and make all this amazing music it, it, it in a way i mean i think also this would be very expensive to do that in that way and it's really too bad i mean electric lady was really like the unofficial soul querying clubhouse and i would love to see you know, something like that happen again and um, and, and see what, what came out of that. Cause I just bought the show you some love uh, 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 But you my mother's on the afternoon uh, 
See, I'm like that old bucket of Crisco that's sitting on top of the stove. Send my simmer to a sizzle like a day. When I wait till the master dip, let the other go first. So the mother won't miss. Fry till we find the crisp. See, we be cooking so the bones can raise their face like this. Now you know how we're going down. Don't let your neck dip. Move your back and work your way down to your feet. Just don't get me. Come on, everybody, let's I just wanna put you down. Yeah. I just want y'all to get down. Yeah. Everybody come lay down. In some ways, Voodoo is kind of the last album or or one of the last handful of albums that could really be made in that way because as record sales have dropped off and, and as the, the music industry has changed so much in terms of where the money is coming from, it, there are no record labels anymore that are willing to pay for two and three years worth of studio time. It makes you wonder what what are the great albums that we might be missing out on today because that that kind of you know that that kind of summer camp doesn't exist anymore for artists. I mean that's a good question, and I honestly, I mean I'm sure there are artists, you know, independent artists who are doing things within like you know say co-ops or you know just people they know, and they're just sort of you know like sharing you know sharing samples sharing songs and you know doing things i mean i'm sure it's happening in a different kind of way now um but yeah i don't but also i don't know and and i don't want to sound elitist in the sense i also don't know i mean in addition to the money i don't the level of musicianship you know i don't know i mean to have again to have that level of of craftsmen and women under one roof. I don't, that, you know, I mean, that's like, basically let's get some of the best players, you know, in the world, like some of the best musicians in the world and just have them all at one recording studio working on several albums. I mean, it just, it, I, that, you know, it's, I don't know. I don't know if we have like, who is the Roy Hargrove? of Gen Z? Who mm-hmm. is the Pino, Pino Palladino of Gen Z? Who's the James Poiser? Of, who's the millennial James Poiser? Maybe they're out there and I don't know who they are. I'm not saying they don't exist, but, and, and do they get the chance to sort of what you were getting at to have the sort of summer camp experience where they get to, uh, you know, work with other of their peers who are also at the top of their game, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I mean, there, there are people, you know, like, uh, I think like flying Lotus, Thundercat, um, Glasper, Kamasi Washington, they seem to pop up together on a bunch of albums and I don't know how they record these, but I, I can't help but imagine that a lot of it is they send a song over to someone and they say, can you add something to this? And they're across the country, record it, send it back to them in an email you know, so I don't know how much of it is that, you know, collective of musicians in three different rooms in the same studio popping back and forth. Oh, can I pop in on this? I want to pop in on this. I'll trade you sw- I'll, I'll trade you songs. You know, like, I don't know how much of that is going to happen, especially after 2020, when people realize you can make an album without leaving your house and still have anyone you want contribute to it, you know? So 
Yeah, we we do have something that. But you know, in in the year two thousand, I don't know how common it was. That that's kind of what makes it a spectacular album. Is that I don't know how many albums in this time period were made like that. I don't know, like what was happening at the Capitol Building. You know, whether there were like four different artists there who were, you know, doing the same kind of thing. I don't think so because it really just sounds like a Motown operation or the Brill Building in the nineteen sixties. You know, it sounds like. You know, they were trying to do something that was wasn't even common in their time. You know, you know, and and for them, they're trying to remake. They're trying to do something that happened in the early seventies, in the early two thousands. So that's a thirty year difference. So maybe we still have, you know, about another decade before we get something similar. You know, something of the 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 equivalent. I don't know. The album does finally get released in mid-January of 2000. Um, and there are, uh, at the end of 1999 and in January 1st of 2000, um, there are four singles that are released from the album ahead of the album's release. And again, I think this is EMI trying to recoup some money along the way ahead of the release of the album. But the fourth single to be released from the album before it came out, and ultimately the one that would really kind of propel it forward, is untitled, parenthetically, How Does It Feel? 
And it wasn't just that this was released as the fourth single from the album. This was the first single from the album to have a really iconic music video that in some ways kind of changed D'Angelo's, maybe his relationship to his audience, to his relationship to his own body. Um, it maybe led to him being hypersexualized. Faith, can you talk to us a little bit about that video, how it was received and what was ultimately kind of the, the results in his career and in his personal life of that video? Yeah, um, the video. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the short answer is that D'Angelo was a victim of his own success. Um, his manager at the time, the late Dominique Trenier, uh, he wanted D'Angelo and Voodoo to make a splash. He didn't want it to sort of fly under the radar when it was, uh, when the album was released. Uh, and so he was like, you know what, let's, it was his idea to have D'Angelo perform untitled uh, under the, the impression that he was naked, um, even though technically he wasn't. Um, and he thought, you know, this, and, and also just to put it in context for people who are younger, in the 90s, um, you know, pretty much from when um, MTV launched in the 80s throughout the 90s and early aughts, MTV was huge. MTV, MTV only showed music videos. <laughs> and you really had, you needed MTV in many, in, in many cases to break an artist or to get an artist to the next level. Um, you sort of had the, you had to play the music video game. That's how much of a BMF um, MTV was, it was at the time. Um, so it made sense that Trenier was like, you know what, we need you know, a, a music video that's going to propel D'Angelo, the song, you know, the entitled song and the Voodoo album into the stratosphere in a way that can't be denied. And, you know, D'Angelo, I mean, he started working out, you know, like I think a, probably what, a year or so before the album was even done. I mean, he was working with a, a trainer, a celebrity tra trainer named Mark Jenkins. So he was, you know, if this wasn't a like last minute, hey, you know, let's get in shape and make this video. He had been training, you know, for for quite a while up until the video was shot. So, and, you know, he wanted to look good. You know, his team wanted him to look good. So, um, you know, they and he was sort of, D'Angelo, you know, put in context, D'Angelo is very shy. And he was sort of like, really, you want me to be naked in this video? But he, you know, he, I think, also understood, you know, what it was, what the purpose of the video was. So, so he agreed to do it, um, shot the video. Uh, Paul Hunter uh, directed it. Uh, uh, Dominique Trenier got a co-directing credit on it. And it was released November, the video was released November 99. And it worked, but it worked too well <laughs> it got the buzz it got it did everything it was supposed to do it untitled became a hit song it, it cracked um you know the billboard um 100 singles chart uh the album when it came out premiere uh, it they when the album came out in january 2000 it debuted at number one so it did the video did exactly what it what it was supposed to do the problem is 
it worked too well. And the focus, there was so much focus on the entitled video that it really overshadowed everything else. And part of that is because, and, and Trenye knew this when he was thinking about this video, there wasn't really, videos for the most part were being made by male directors for the male gaze. This is one of the few videos that you have, particularly with a black man singing to women. Like it's clear, he's not sing he's not singing to a model. He's not singing off into the sun, you know, off into the sunset or whatever. He is staring directly into the camera, singing to you, or in that case, singing to me or any other straight woman watching this video. Watching this video, and we're sitting there going, "Yay!" So I have to say, as a heterosexual black woman, yes, this video, <laughs> this video worked, uh, and that's all. I just remember the first. Pretty much the first three months that video was out. That's all black, particularly black women talked about was that video. Every, almost every other day it was like, have you seen a new D'Angelo video? Oh my God, the new D'Angelo video. D'Angelo looks so good. Look at his abs. Look at his cornrows. Oh my God. I wish he was singing to me. D'Angelo. I mean, it was sort of insane. I mean, I don't know. I don't know a, a straight black woman around that time that was not completely in love with that video. Um, so it was, you know, it was a huge success. It got uh, heavy rotation play on MTV, also on BET. Everybody was talking about it uh, to the point where you had even black, I hate to say it, but some straight black men who really, they were in their feelings about this video because they were just like, you know, they were just mad that D'Angelo was singing, I guess, to their woman or their mother or whatever. And that threatened, the, I guess that threatened their masculinity or something. I still don't completely understand it. But there were black men that did not like that video. It pissed them off. Um, but at, coming back to the whole, like, how it affected how the, the album was received, I think, obviously, the album was recognized, you know, for the music, you know, as, as a musical Ma you know, for the musical masterpiece that it was, particularly by music critics. But a lot of people, they were really hung up on the video and it started to piss D'Angelo off. I mean, at, when he went on tour and I I went to two of those shows uh, on the Voodoo tour and the level of screaming that women were doing, I mean, that was like Elvis performing at, at you know, for Ed Sullivan level screaming. That was you know, like early Rolling Stones and girls falling out over Mick Jagger level screaming. I mean, it was, I don't, I, I, it was, I mean, Michael Jackson level screaming. I was like, holy crap. And even I was sort of shocked by it. And I mean, you just had women, particularly in the front. I mean, they were throwing panties on stage. They were trying to rip his clothes off. And they were just like, take me, take me. I mean, it was just, and it started to grate on him because at the end of the day, D'Angelo is a musician and he takes that very, he takes his music very seriously. Um, music is real. Music really is his wife. Um, and I, I mean, there's a reason the, I think that there's a reason D'Angelo has never been married. He's married to his music. And so I think that just took its toll because if you are a serious artist, you want people to recognize that. And all, if everybody's just throwing, you know, you just have people throwing panties at you and, you know, clawing at you, maybe in the beginning, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, women dig me. Yeah, you know, like that becomes an ego boost. But if that goes on for months on end and you're trying to promote an album and you're trying to sing songs and perform songs that you spent three plus years 
or more working on, you know, and, you know, and all anybody wants to do is hear untitled and, you know, pretend you're stripping for them. That took its toll. And I think, you know, I, I spoke to Alan Leeds for the, for the book. He was, a, he was the tour manager at the time um, when Voodoo came out. And he said that he, he admitted to me that, you know, we, we meaning him and Trenye uh, did not, prepared D'Angelo for the, the, for the reaction to Untitled. I think they were taken by surprise for it. I think his management team didn't expect it to be the, the thing that it ended up becoming. I, and they just didn't, they were not ready. They were not ready for it. They did not prepare D'Angelo for it. And he, he told me in hindsight, even though it, again, from a promotional standpoint, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. It, um, Alan Lee said, you know what? I think in hindsight, maybe the video was a bad idea because it really, D'Angelo was like angry and probably depressed. I mean, I think it, it was, it, it, he, you know, he was acting out and, and uh, um, um, backstage and he, it just, it, it, it was, it was the apex. And then from their point, from that point forward, it was like a downward spiral. I'm glad you brought that up because you know, one of the kind of motifs that we didn't like plan for in this podcast has just been that like nobody's like built for fame. No one is built for success. Like even even if they had tried to prep D'Angelo for it, you can't, especially with someone who's shy, you know, like D'Angelo is probably more reserved. You know, you can't be prepared for just like an arena of thousands of people screaming at you. It's terrifying, you know, like no one, no one has a natural response for how to like, you know, deal with that. like to do when we talk about a specific album and we have a guest is we like for them to share 
uh, their top favorite songs from the album. And when you do that, um, they also gives you a chance to kind of gush about each song, about why you think it's so brilliant. So Faith, if you wouldn't mind, if you have it ready, uh, what are your top five favorite songs from Voodoo? The first two, I sort of go back and forth on the first two. It almost depends on what day you ask me. But for today, um, my my number one, my favorite album, I'm sorry, my number one, my favorite song from Voodoo is The Root. Oh. I love I love everything about it. I love the lyrics. I love the arrangement and all you know all shout outs to charlie hunter because he wrote the music for it um i love i i think the vocal the way the vocals were recorded i mean they were layered on top of each other and i think elevato did an amazing job as far as arranging all that and you know how he mixed it and it's just it's just you really feel like you feel like you're a D'Angelo. I mean, D'Angelo is singing about sort of almost being in this like fun house of turmoil, you know, related to love and, you know, and how this woman makes him feel. And you feel like you're in that fun house with him. Like you're, you know, like you're looking through all these mirrors and they're reflecting back at you and you just sort of forget where you are. So uh, the root is number one. But again, it varies. It, sometimes I switch it out with number two, uh, which is Spanish joint. Uh, I I think particularly the musical arrangement on that is just bar none. I think the you know the 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 horns um, from Roy Hargrove, rest in peace. <laughs> it's really sad how many times I've said rest in peace while talking about this, but that just shows you how many people who worked on Voodoo that we've lost. Um, but the, the horns are amazing. Uh, I mean, just, it, it's a, again, I think it's a beautifully written song. And I think, let me just say this real quickly. I think D'Angelo, people talk about D'Angelo a lot as a musician, as, as they should, because he's an amazing musician. But I think he's an amazing lyricist. And I really, when I said that he's on a Bob Dylan level, I meant that. Yeah, it's a beautiful, I, I love that song. And I just love like the, you know, the Latin flavor of it. Uh, it just, it makes me smile every time I hear that song. So that's number two. Uh, three is Left and Right, which I sort of, I mentioned earlier. Although it it was my favorite song when the, when the album first came out, but I will say the the raps, uh, you know, that uh, Method Man and Red Man do at the beginning and the end of that song, eh. Uh, doesn't really, I mean, on a Me Too tip, I don't know if it holds up because yeah, it's- They haven't aged well. Right, exactly. It, it It's very borderline misogynist. It's very raunchy. It's, you know, and and and, and, and that sort of, I get it. I mean, the song is about, you know, wanting to, you know, hook up with this exotic dancer. So I get it, but yeah, the, the raps are hard. They That's hard to listen to now. But I, I mean, it's still up there. I, I can't lie. So left and left, left and right is number three. Uh, One more again is four. Uh, again, beautiful song. And it's very minimalist on a certain level because uh, it's really just, you know, I mean, the primary instrument is the organ. So it's just like really D'Angelo and his organ and a lot of, you know, amazing like vocal texturing and layering although i will say i think 
of all the songs on Voodoo, I think that is a showcase for Pino Palladino. I love his bass line on that. I just think it's, I just think it's fire. So that's one more again. That's four. And then five is Great Day in the Morning, which is a, another song that Charlie Hunter co-wrote uh, on Voodoo and played on. Uh, I just think, again, I think the lyrics are very poignant. That, that I think for a lot of, you know, and, and for people, you know, when you're struggling, you're just trying to, you are sort of trying to get by and just make it to another day. I mean, I, particularly during the pandemic, I think that was all of us during the pandemic. We we're just like, Jesus, when is this going to end? And I think that song speaks to not uh, sort of giving up, but just in a way, it's a very, it's a hopeful song. It's like, you know, I'm still, you know, I'm still looking for that great, you know, a great day in the morning and just putting one foot in front of the other and trying to make it through. And I, and I just think that's why D'Angelo's lyrics and his voice are, are so resonant particularly on this album and particularly in the song because it's it's timeless and it speaks to things that you can point to right now when you look at the news or read the newspaper so yeah. they
Well, we know that Voodoo is your favorite album of all time, but we don't ever like to have a guest on without asking them what their top five albums are. So let's assume we already know you're number one at Voodoo. What makes up the rest of your top five albums? I'm glad you asked that. Uh, number two, uh, Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life. Three, uh, OK Computer by Radiohead. Sort of similar to, to D'Angelo. Like when I finished listening to Voodoo, I was like, this is the same guy that did Brown Sugar? Same thing with OK Computer. When I finished listening to OK Computer, I was like, this is the same band that put out Creep? So that's, that's three. Uh, four, uh, Grace by Jeff Buckley. Rest in peace. Uh, what can I, I? I just want to say, Faith, I love your taste. You are you are supporting all of these great albums that I have brought to our podcast over the years, and uh, I keep trying to sell Micaiah on us covering Jeff Buckley's Grace on this podcast. So tell us about Jeff Buckley's Grace. Oh, Micaiah, come on, really? We have to have a conversation about this? Okay. Uh, <laughs> dude, come on. No, I know. I haven't even met you yet, and I'm already mad. No. Um, Grace. Okay. Similar to Voodoo, I think by the time I got by by the time I got to the title song Grace, which is the uh second song on the album, I, I was just like, Dear God, this man is dead. Are you serious? I, I just like I was ironing, I stopped ironing. I thought I was gonna burn down the apartment. I was like, oh wait, let me get the iron off my clothes. I, and by the time it got to Corpus Christi Carol, that was the song that broke me, it was Corpus Christi Carol. Because Jeff Buckley has this angelic voice and has such a high falsetto. That's, I mean, I thought I, I, I thought I was going to just completely just break down the sobs at the end of that song. Um, so, let me, let me bring you back. You're yes. album number five. Um, well, actually that's the one I just have question marks because I actually don't know because there are so many albums that I could rotate in and out for five, uh, like security by Peter Gabriel is one, uh, rapture by Anita Baker is one amazing grace by Aretha Franklin is one. Uh, what else? Inner Visions, Stevie, uh, Jesus. Um, I mean, there were so many albums that I could just slot into Listen Like Thieves and Excess. Uh, there's so many. Uh, it, uh, I, I Love You, Paris, Shirley Horn. I mean, it just there, there were so many albums I could slot into five, depending on how I feel, that I, I, I couldn't pick a fifth one. Well, I'm going to count Intervisions because that was my Stevie Wonder pick when we did uh, our Stevie Wonder episode. So I'll, I'll count Intervisions as as number five, uh, just for for a win for me. <laughs> That's uh, right. That's a good choice. Thank you so You're much. Welcome. And Faith, please um, tell our listeners um, how you can be found on on social media. I am on Twitter for now at Faith Pinnock, and that's F is in Frank A I T H. Pinnock, P is in Paul, E, N is in Nancy, N, I, C, K. No spaces, no underscore, just at Face Pinnock. Uh, same thing with Instagram, Face Pinnock. Uh, my website is orchaos.com, O-R-G-C-H-A-O-S.com. Well, listener, we want to thank her so much for being with us. And you can find her 33 and a third volume on D'Angelo's Voodoo. 
anywhere you buy books, of course, we encourage you to purchase it at your local independent book retailer or at bloomsbury.com. Faith, thanks so much for being with us. It was a real treat. Well, thanks again to both of you. And this was really fun. faith share her top five songs from voodoo um but we didn't during our conversation so let's take the time now to share with each other our top five songs from voodoo sure and these aren't ranked this will just be an order of how they appear on the album um my five from the album are the opening track play a play uh devil's pie the second track on the album Mm-hmm. Chicken Grease, The Root, mm-hmm. and Untitled, How Does It Feel? Nice. And and really for me, I, I mean, I, I feel like those five songs give you such a picture of the diversity of different kinds of soul and R&B and neo-soul that you hear on the album. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and kind of to the point that Faith had shared... You know, Left and Right is a song that I, I think probably in my early 20s when I was first listening to this album is, is probably a song I liked a lot more. But the the older I get, and especially in light of a lot of the maturation and evolution that's happened in our culture, I, I think that, you know, Method Man and Red Man's verses on that song, they, they don't hold up well over time. So my top five also just how they appear on the album uh devil's pie also which is so good uh send it on which is just all the harmonies on that are just really really great uh his voice is that's probably like my favorite uh track for just like d'angelo's like voice is on uh send it on uh then a uh, great day in the morning slash booty and then untitled how does it feel and then africa interesting the the closing track uh which i understand they were i think they're trying to play all of prince's album parade the 1986 album and then just were jamming and then it just kind of transitioned into africa Mm -hmm. um which is a I just think a, a phenomenal achievement and a, and a really great way to, to close out that album in particular. So love, 
the record um have it on vinyl and i'll, I'll say streaming this album it feels like it because it's a long album i mean it's one cd and it's the cd era but it's it's like the full disc it's almost 80 minutes of music but the record just goes by with ease maybe because there's only 13 tracks even though it's you know so long like only two songs are under five minutes long um I mean, on the listening to it on on vinyl is just a, just a better listen. I don't know why it just it just goes down smoother mm-hmm. for me. Breaking up each song and just like spinning like kind of like you know the, the I don't know. There's something about listening to it on vinyl that really brings out each song much better. Just going three at a time, so just streaming it straight for eighty minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that is my preferred way of listening to it and there are right and wrong ways to listen to this album because i've listened to it in multiple ways preparing for this so i think headphones are good mm-hmm. okay i think the car is great and i think um and I, and I have like a, a good speaker for my TV and that works fine. But, and I have like a nice stereo system for my, for my records. And that sounds the best. Cause there's also a right volume to listen to this album. Cause if you just kind of have it on in the background, right. Like this is one, like you have to play loud, like mm-hmm. to like feel like you are in the room with them as they're making, because it has that effect. And that's certainly what they're going for. So this is best listened to um, as loud as you can without harming your ears or offending anyone around you. So that's my recommendation. So yeah, it's just, it's just a, a master class in uh, musicianship. Fantastic record. Uh, glad to have it on our list. Um, yeah, about time I guess we covered it. Yeah. So I, I think that kind of answers the question then that I wanted to ask, which was, so does this deserve to be on our list? And uh, it sounds like for you, that answer is, is pretty pretty confidently yes. For me, it's confidently yes. Now, Rolling Stone has it at 28. I don't, I don't have it at 28. 28th best album of all time. Not me. Um, personally. Um, so not, not top 25. Man, and I think I think about all the record like we just we did a solid top fifty last season. Does it crack the top fifty? I don't know. But here in the top seventy five, which we're putting together for the end of this season, I feel I feel really good about that. Yeah, and and I will say, you know, obviously this only being our third episode of this new season, um, I can say based on the 53 albums we've talked about so far, this would definitely be top 50 for me. Um, probably, probably high forties. Um, I'm with you. I probably don't think that of this as a top 30 album of all time, but it is mm-hmm. definitely a top hundred of all time. And I, I can say that with, with pretty great confidence. Yeah, for sure. So listener, what about you? What do you think of the Neo Soul Masterpiece Voodoo by D'Angelo? Let me throw this out there. Do you think we've done the wrong D'Angelo album? Do you think Black Messiah should be in this conversation rather than Voodoo? Do you think it should be Brown Sugar? 
let us know. Let us know what you think. Do you think this is the best Neo Soul, Neo Soul album? We'd love to hear from you. We are You Forgot One Pod on Twitter. You Forgot One on Instagram. And Micaiah, for everyone who's listening on their preferred podcasting platform, what do they need to do? If you're listening to this now, you should give us a five-star review and um, also write a review. Um, that would be a big help uh, for us. It helps other people find the show, and it just makes us feel good. Um, so write the review and just let us know what it is that you're enjoying, right? So we can give you more of it. Um, also, if you haven't already, you need to follow, like, subscribe, whichever, right, you're you know podcast provider tells you to do so that when as we're releasing right new episodes um as they drop they'll be you know uploaded right to your phone device or wherever you listen to your podcast listener we're going to leave you now with the closing track of voodoo africa and we will see you back next week as we talk about my favorite album of all time u2's the joshua tree We'll see you next week. Africa is my descent. And here I'm far from home. I dwell within the land that's meant. Meant for many men, not my tongue. the town.